So we're seeing a lot more lakes warm up, a lot more lakes heat up. We're seeing a lot of heat, hot snaps. This is the hottest time of the year. Your lake's going through something out there. You've been seeing oils on top of it. You can see the fish aren't biting. And uh, we actually dive into this. This is actually a, a natural phenomenon, and there are some things you can do about it. There is, and the only thing I could really think of is that Matt said heat, which makes me think, in the heat of the night, I hear the wolf how hot ass stepping around your door. White snake for you. And uh, so, I'm going yeah. I'm gonna just challenge you right now to see if you can throw that into a, into the podcast a, a few times. I'll be interested oh, to do that. Just wait and see, buddy. This is a good topic, though. This is important right now. It is. There's a lot of people got a lot of things happen to the surface of water. They're worried about oils on the surface. They're worried about the fish getting a little bit smaller. It's a time of it's a it's a true stress event. And so yeah, people need to know a little bit more what's going on. So I think you'll enjoy this podcast. Yep, it'll be a good one. Welcome to Sitting Dockside. This podcast is for people who dig ponds and lakes as much as we do. On this podcast, we're going to bring the most knowledgeable people from all over the country talk about wildlife fisheries lake construction lake management sit them down hang out and just talk some shop i'm your host matt rail i've been working with lakes and ponds for over 20 years and during that time i picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake and pond owners all over the country so if you want to learn how to catch some smiles for your kids and grandkids off your lake or how to grow some memories off your pond then come sit with us sitting dockside I got your, I got it. All right, man. So sitting dockside, Troy and Matt, just living the dream. Day, we're going to talk about some lakes and ponds. And today's topic, drum roll, is we're getting some crazy hot weather. I got one of my hatchery ponds. It looks like it's about dry. Getting some screaming hot weather in the 90s, upper 90s temps and you know over 100 as far as uh what it feels like outside and then you're even worse down there um, yeah but start- i bet I, I bet you're fixing to get some cool days from uh hurricane laura she's gonna have an effect on y'all i bet i bet it will but this week here has been just sticky and it, yeah it has here too. now we get a shorter days and we hit on that a little bit uh but you, you know, know what you know uh, what summertime heat you know what summertime heat makes me think of What's that? In the heat of the night, I hear the wolf howl, honey, stepping around your door. <laughs> little white snake. How about that little white yeah. snake? Come on, Wes. Uh, I didn't think you could work it in, but you did. It was, it was impressive. It's <laughs> because uh, it's good. So we start to see during when things start to heat up. Ken Wagner's hit on a little bit when temperatures really exceed 82. And get up towards the 90s, you start to see majority of the, the heat-tolerant algaes, and those are cyanobacteria. Your zooplankton, which is the bottom primary food chain, deplenishes. And so basically, you have fish. I had a conversation with Stephen Barden today on, on what heat does to fish. You'll think this is kind of interesting. But before I go there is that uh, – so the lake pretty much goes on. There's not much production as far as fish growth, because every, all the energy and, and heat in the pond is not producing a lot of things on the bottom of the food chain. But I've got to be real cautious to my words because 
when I say not production there, that's the reason is, is there's so much production and I'll, and I want to use this example. So you take hot tea and you pour sugar in it, right? I've used this example before, but I want to reiterate. First of all, first of all, stop. I'm not British. I'm not British. We need to use the example of coffee. So hot coffee, not hot tea. Well, no, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So when you make your sweet tea, you warm up your tea, it's hot, and then that is when you added sugar. And the reason you did add sugar is because it's hot. It was like, well, it dilutes. But why does it dilute? Do you ever think that why it's it goes in dilution quicker when it's hot? Well, the simple way to think about this is heat is energy. And as you increase in temp- temperature, you have increase of, of, of energy in that cup as it's hot. So I'm going to take a side point. Let's say you did the same example on tea and it's cold. You poured the sugar in there. It does not dissolve. So what do you have to do? You have to stir, stir it. it. And when yeah. you stir it, that is the energy potential. So adding in it, as you, you know, make your elbow weak because you're stirring up the daggum sugar mm-hmm. in there so much, that is the same energy potential that is in heat. So it's just you can't see it. And so when I will take that into the lakes is chemical reactions double for every 10 degree C we change. So Stephen, we used an example. He was with a uh, well-known fisherman and he caught a lake, uh, caught some fish. Uh, there was 90 degree water temperature. He caught some fish. He weighed him. He felt that they were in the 80. Well, he weighed them out there in the 80 to 85% relative weight category. And, and, the fisherman asked him, why are these fish so low in, in relative health? And the example that Stephen was using is that these fish a month or a month and a half later will be around 105% relative weight. They are digesting. Their metabolism is so high right now that is they're even consuming as much fish as they can do. And they're just trying to keep, again, they're just reactions. They're there are chemical reactions, so they're so hot right now that they're they're gorging themselves. They're not, and there's not a high. This is a man. This is a timely conversation, Matt, because uh, this podcast is great, but it also may reveal my weaknesses. I had never thought about that. So I've got I've got legs right now. People are like, look, number one, fish are hard to catch. I don't know exactly the reasoning for that, but this time of year, you get what's called summertime bellies. Thin fish, yeah, uh, and the reason is because their metabolism is so high because it's so hot that they are not able to put weight on. But so, as Ken was talking about, we are seeing lakes, ponds get hotter, and as I don't care about your political belief or stance, but that is what a what a thermostat is telling us is we're seeing hot ponds and lakes get hotter uh, in continuous in the last 20 years. And the trending is up. And then the next 20 years, if things change, that's great. But we are looking at ways that what we need to do in the future. And now, so there's been a lot of people say, what do I do? I have a hot lake. 
now I'm above 90 degree, so I switched to cyanobacteria. And so therefore I'm not producing a ton of zooplankton. So my baby fish aren't growing. I'm not getting a lot of recruitment. I'm not, my bass are metabolism like crazy and they're not putting on weight. So one of the options was brought to the table about using an aeration system at night instead of during the day. You say, well, that makes a total sense. Why are we mixing it during the afternoons when you can heat up, stirring up the water and they could heat up the pond lake, pond and lake as fast. And as I was talking to you, Troy, earlier about this, that is exactly what you can do. But bottom-based aeration systems are designed to run 24-7. So for simple math, if you have 10 CFM, and that's not what you need, but I'm just using that number as simple math. 10 CFM to destratify that lake per day, that's what those sized up in. So it needs that 24 hours to get that 10 CFM to destratify your lake. Now, if you cut it to only 12 hours, you're only getting five CFM. So if you want to run a bottom-based aeration system or aeration system at night or circulator at night when it's cool, that's awesome. But make sure you size that system to do that. So that's the biggest flaw that I see a lot of times. Now, temporarily, you get a warm front, like we only get two weeks of hot weather up here. That's temporarily do that. That's great. But long-term, like guys in Texas and, and a little bit where you're at, Troy, you you can't do that long-term. That's not a huge long-term su- success story unless you well, it to do that. So there's, there's three points here I'd like to make. One is that, obviously, the science is in on lake bottom aeration and what it does for a lake or a pond if you're running at 24-7. The science is in. For, for the best water quality, for improving water quality in a lake or a pond, the system needs to be, number one, sized properly and needs to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week to a certain point. Now, there are times in, in the southeast even, you know, well, it depends on where you are. This is all regional. So when we get into Tennessee, there are times of the year when we have Florida genetics in bass that we need to shut that system down. We need to, we need to let there be a, a warm water refuge for bass. But when we're talking about water quality, especially in the summer months, those aeration systems need to run 24 hours a day. The second point, if you were only using an aeration system to provide oxygen during the crucial uh, times of day for oxygen demand, you've got to remember, you've got a biomass, you've got, a, you've got, a live, you've got living organisms in a lake of multiple species, fish, algae, phytoplankton, all of that has oxygen demand, every bit of it. So if you're going to um, supplement the oxygen in a water column to, to keep up with the biomass, you can do that with the lake bottom aeration system and only run it at night, but you're not doing what Matt was just talking about in terms of keeping a lake destratified, removing that thermocline and keeping the water quality where it should be. Uh, and the third point is, is this time of year, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that in the heat of the night, I hear the wolf howl, honey, <laughs> sniffing around your door. It you gets hot, it. y'all. You it have gets me. hot this. It gets hot this time of year. I had yeah. Matt. I had Matt pulled in like. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. I was like, what is number three? Yeah. But so there, uh, there, there's truly two points. So you've got to, you've you've got to decide what you're trying to do. If you are looking for true water quality enhancements, you've got to run 24-7. 
if you're if you're looking to just provide uh, sustaining oxygen Bam. for life, then you can run just at night. But it, you've got to you've got to do it the right way. So I agree with you. The uh, I'm going to go in a little bit for just a couple minutes, Troy. Bear with me. I'm going to say why do you need to destratify your lake, and that is because. And just a little bit of rewind. I feel like I need to do it just, uh, and I'm going to do a preface of it, but there is a podcast with Patrick Goodwin on more about aeration systems. So, but on a bond based destratification system, they really need to work oxygen, eliminate, eliminating thermoclines, destratifying them, but getting oxygen to the sediment water interface is where they're important. That's where the meat and potatoes of that system really works. As Troy says, uh, you know, don't use this as emergency aeration system. They are continuously, they're your insurance button. They get volume into the whole water column. But getting air to the sediment water interface, that mud on bottom is really the meat and potatoes. It, when you get oxygen, oxygen down to the sediments, you get iron, Iron binds phosphorus when it's in the oxidative state. As you take that oxygen molecule away, it releases into water column, and then you have more problems. So also, increase of food production with zooplankton and, and tubular worms down there. So it's a great food source for bluegill um, as you get them down there. Also, reduction of mucks and decrease in, in toxic gases as hydrogen sulfide and CO2. Muck is di organics are digested seven times faster in aerobic state than anaerobic, um, meaning with oxygen and without. So getting oxygen to that sediment, making sure it's destratified and not allowing that thermocline is important. So I'm going to push that all aside. The, uh, so to, to a good segue is a lot of times you need a cool water refuge down there. So let's move that diffuser up. You know, let's move it four or five feet up in the air. I've heard that. I just got a gentleman uh, talk to me, you know, a customer talked to me about that. He says, well, can we just move it? And that, in theory, would work, but bottom-based aeration systems do not decrease. They don't pull water much farther than where the bubble plume sits. So so if, let's say, you raise the diffuser four feet off the water, and then it, and it's pulling in water from to the diffuser, and you have three-foot area in which it's not, you're losing all the benefits of bottom-based area system. It's just going to stratify under the diffuser, and the sediments are going to become anoxic. Well, the sediments are almost two-thirds of your oxygen, not production, cons consumption of the lake. More than fish, more than anything. So it's going to lose oxygen down there quicker. So do not move your diffuser up and create a refuge. I don't see a benefit. Do you, Troy? No, I, I think I think this goes back to a client defining what they want from their lake. I think this is the most important goal. So, I've had clients two scenarios. One in the southeast, by the way, the people that come to me and say, "Hey, I want a smallmouth bass fish." Okay, that's fine. We can work on ways to do that, but you need to have some cool water for smallmouth bass, and that's tough to accomplish when you're using an aeration system that is homogenizing your water column. Uh, it truly is. So there's one point. The other point is I have people all the time that come to me and say, hey, we're going to do a geothermal unit for our house in the bottom of our lake. 
what is aeration going to do for that? Well, it may screw it up, to be honest with you. But this comes this comes into defining what you're trying to accomplish for a lake. Is it you can have you can you can have close to the best of all worlds, but not not to the not to the degree that some people think they can. You, you have to define what the client's wanting. And in the southeast, we have, for the most part, there's going to be a few people who argue with me this, on this point uh, from region to region in the southeast, but lake bottom aeration is by far and away the best way to make a healthy environment for fish. We've learned that from not only our uh, uh, conversation with Patrick, Ken Wagner, uh, you and I see it personally on a day-to-day basis with the increasing sign of bacteria issues, the heat the phosphorus loading, all of those things come into play in aeration. I'm not saying cures those things, but it is part of the prescription for fixing all of those issues. And if a client says, hey, I want to have the best geothermal unit on the planet, I'm digging a 60-foot lake, and I'm going to put it down there, well, you probably don't need to put an aeration system down there. So that's going to change how you manage their fish population. That doesn't mean they can't have a good fish population, but it's going to change how you manage that population. So you, you have to talk about lake health, and then you have to talk about client wants. And those two things have to mesh somewhere, and they don't always line up exactly right. So, right. so as things get hotter, have you done anything at all that keep these things cooler? I mean, these lakes. Yeah, look, you can, you look when, so aeration systems, obviously. No, there's nothing you can do there. Sure. I mean, you can, you can buy cooling units to put on a lake if you want to, but I don't know. You got to be somebody wealthier than uh, me to do that. <laughs> Have you used wells to cool down? Especially yeah, but it's, I mean, yeah, but you're, I mean, you're kind of, I mean, you would have to have a, I mean, it depends on the size of the lake. I mean, yeah. yeah. If you've yeah, got a quarter acre, if you've got a quarter acre pond and you've got yeah. a, a 1500 gallon per minute whale, you may can do some, you can make can do something there. But if you've got a 10 acre lake and a 50 gallon per minute whale, <laughs> you're yeah. pissing in the ocean, buddy. I don't know what to tell you. There's not, not much you can do there. So the best thing for cooling lakes from top to bottom is lake bottom aeration. If you want a, here's the problem that people don't get. If you try to have a cool water refuge, that means you're going to have a thermocline unless this new technology with providing oxygen beneath the thermocline works out. Your smallmouth bass can't live down there anyway. They, they can't break. They can't go down there because there's no oxygen. Right. So this is always the this is always the dichotomy that we face. This is the conundrum we face. You you can't have necessarily the best of both worlds. So. So, yeah, I mean, there has been some people try to cool things down with a well. It all depends on flow, where you're at. Um, uh, yeah, but- look, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. So I had a client in North Mississippi years ago. He had a 20-acre lake. Uh, it was leaking. They dug, and this is over kind of towards the Delta area of Mississippi. Awesome place big aquifer over there you can pump as much water as you can possibly pump he had a trout stream that came up around the house and came down as about a third of a mile long and he was pumping two wells at 1500 gallons per minute out of each well to run that trout stream to keep it cool enough to house the trout year-round well what they found out was that lake was leaking 
and he was pulling that water out of the same aquifer and pumping it back up and keeping the lake full. But all of that being said, he was cooling off a big section of the lake because he was pumping 3,000 gallons per minute into one section of the lake. So, yeah, there was a cool water refuge there. That's a lot of effort to cool off a very right. small a portion of, of uh, yeah. uh, And you're only cooling a very small portion of a 20-acre lake by doing that. Once it gets out of a certain area, it heats up very, very fast. Uh, Mother Nature and the sun have this ability to heat things up. Yeah, well, uh, to add things, add things to that is that cyanobacteria absorb heat more. You know that? Yeah, yeah. So once you, if you can keep them away longer, you don't get as hotter. Clarity, decrease in clarity, the less absorption of heat. So that's another thing, too. And then is as you can increase your refraction of the sunlight, and this is going to be the next step in our world, unless nanobubble or hyperlimnetic aeration, which is aerating below the thermocline, not disrupting it, comes into play with good power, we're going to see a lot of refraction, I think, in the next next 20 years. So we're going to be yeah. adding some things to that. So that would be interesting. And well, look, the thing, the, the thing right now, the thing right now we've got to do is we've got to focus on truly educating people on, on the best possible aeration, on phosphorus reduction, and on cyanobacteria control. And I think those three things will go a long way into improving overall lake health and overall fishery goals. I've Definitely. talked to multiple, I've talked to multiple people this week about that, and it's we've got to change some things in our industry. Well, there it is. I appreciate it, man. I think you wrapped it up. I think that would be a good closing right there. Let's we'll leave it at that. Two thumbs up. You gonna leave with a little saying about heat? Come on, a little white. Snake. In the heat of the night, I hit a wolf on highest living around your door. White snake, about circa nineteen ninety something, eighty nine, ninety one. I don't know somewhere. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners on their water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues in the future. Podcast, education, video, become a member. If nothing else, there's tons of platforms. YouTube, Facebook. Just hit like. Send a comment. We appreciate everything you can do here at PWNRA.